All right, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, we'll be looking in chapter 10. Today is our last passage that we're going to be looking at in this series, Misquoted, that we've been going through in the month of July. I, I really hope that this series has been beneficial and a help to you, and not only hopefully exposing maybe some wrongly quoted text, but also helping you to see the process through which we interpret the Bible. You know, that's really been the motivation for this whole series that we've done, was that if you didn't get anything else out of any of the messages, hopefully you saw how important context is. That when you go and you read scripture, the dangers of isolating one verse from the whole of the context that surrounds it. You know, one person said that a text without a context is a pretext to make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. The book of 1 Corinthians, if you are a note taker and you can see these, so in, in this passage this morning, there's a lot of references back to the Old Testament. And for sake of time, I'm not going to have time to go back and forth and show you. So if you want to take those corresponding passages down so that after the message you can go and look and see what Paul is alluding to, that's, that te- you can do that while I just kind of introduce the message to us. So the text for this morning is one that is widely misinterpreted, even to the point of where it has become, become a cliche saying that most Christians say. It's a, it's a saying that I myself have said numerous times. Not only have I said it to myself, but it's a saying that I have shared with others, hoping to encourage them when they're going through a, a tough time. And that phrase is this, God will not give you more than you can handle. The problem with this phrase is that while it offers a glimmer of hope in the middle of despair and dejection, it's not one that is entirely biblical. You can go to the book of 2 Corinthians and read about the, the trials that Paul faced. Paul said that he was tested and tried to the point of basically wanting life to end itself. Paul got to the point where he was given more than he was able to, ha- to handle. In 1 Corinthians ten thirteen, which this saying is derived from, what Paul says is, he says, no temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. Listen, just upon the plain reading of that text, we see that, that Paul is not speaking about suffering, that God is not going to allow more suffering than we're able to handle. But what that text is specifically talking about is God is not going to allow us to be tempted to sin beyond what we can handle. While it may not be true that God won't give you more than you can handle, for the Christian, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, is still one of the most comforting passages in all of Scripture, as it promises us power over sin. 
The church at Corinth, which Paul was writing to, was a church that was an absolute mess. As you read through the book of 1 Corinthians, the first letter he sent to them, Paul rebukes this church for division, for incest, for suing one another, for sexual immorality, for marriage and divorce, for eating meat that had been offered to idols, for misunderstanding and abusing spiritual gifts. So then in chapter 10, Paul then uses the the events of the exodus under Moses to warn the Corinthians of this, this dangerous path that they were on and to remind them that there are devastating consequences that come with sinful behavior. If you could summarize verses 1 through 13 in two words, I I believe this is really all Paul is saying in these first 13 verses, and it's this. Avoid sin. Avoid sin. It's a simple message. It's a message that we see repeated throughout the whole of Scripture. The Puritan John Owen said, be killing sin or sin be killing you. So as we look at this passage in 1 Corinthians this morning, I want to encourage us to avoid sin by remembering God's work in the past and by depending on God's faithfulness. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, look at verse 1 with me. Verse 1, the Bible says, Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant, or I want you to know how that all our fathers were under the cloud, it all passed through the sea, and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and did all eat the same spiritual meat, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted neither be idolaters as were some of them as it is written the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand neither let us tempt christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured, and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them for our example, and they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but with the temptation also will make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for each and every person that you have brought here this morning, God. God, I pray that as we dive in and we look at this text that our hearts and our minds will be transformed, that we will be convicted by your word. I pray to remove all distractions, Lord. Lord, I pray that ultimately you would be glorified, that Christ would be exalted through the preaching of your word, Lord, that we would fall more in love with Jesus Christ, God. God, I pray that you would hide me behind the cross, that you would give me clarity as I give your word, and that you would bless us this morning, God. We love you. Thank you for all you do. 
Christ's name, amen. In 1948, in a speech to the House of Commons, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill famously said, those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. As we go through 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I believe it's clear that the Apostle Paul no doubt was in full agreement with Churchill's warning. In verses 1 through 11 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul draws upon the past. He draws upon the example of the ancient Israelites in order to warn about the, the present, in order to warn the Corinthians of the sinful path that they were headed down. In verses 1 through 4, we are reminded of God's goodness to his people. Paul four times says that, says the word all, all of God's children, all of the Israelites were a blessed people. They were a people that clearly experienced God's hand in their life. They were a people that God gave them guidance. Out of 430 years of Egyptian slavery, he guided them as a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. He delivered them from the army of Pharaoh as they were heading out and they came to that obstacle of the Red Sea. God delivered them as he caused the waters of the Red Sea to stand to attention and they were able to cross through on dry land. As they wandered through the desert, God provided for them. As they were hungry and they were thirsty, God opened up the bakery of heaven and for 40 years rained down manna for them to eat. And he caused a well to spring out of a rock in order for them to drink in the middle of the desert. You know, one simple reason why we should avoid sin is because God has been far too good to us for us to continue to live in disobedience and to live a life that is contrary to his word. Listen, unlike the Israelites, as we look back at our own lives and we see God's guidance, we see God's deliverance, we see God's provision, we see what God has done in our life, we see the salvation that he has offered to us, we should determine that we have no other choice but to live for the Lord. You know, it's like that cliche saying that's so true, though, that Christ died for me, so I live for him. But then Paul, as he continues giving this history lesson of the ancient Israelites, says that if God's goodness alone is not enough motivation to avoid sin, then maybe the consequences that come with that sin may be. In verse 5, Paul says that despite God's goodness, the Israelites desired evil things. And because of Israel's extreme disobedience, only two of the original Israelites that left out of Egypt actually made it into the promised land. The rest all died in the wilderness, including Moses and Aaron. Just as we do good, 
to remember the times of God's blessing. Listen, we do good to remember the Red Sea moments of life, to when you are tempted to forget about or believe that God is no longer good, and then as a result, delve into a life of sin, to look back and see what God has brought you through, to see those times when the doctors didn't have answers, those times when there was no friends, there was no family around you, those times when when all was hopeless, all was lost, but God showed up. Listen, that's the first thing we look back at, and But if that's not enough, if you're not able to look back on the goodness of God in your life, it'd be wise to not forget the times and the response and the stories of God's anger to sin. You know, it said that in life you either learn from mentors or you learn from mistakes. I'd rather learn from mentors. I don't know about y'all, but I'd rather learn from the mistakes that others have already made. It's like the idea that Paul is encouraging us that rather than going and touching the hot stove, listen to the person that just told you the stove is hot. Just as there are painful consequences for touching a hot stove, there are consequences for living and indulging in a life of sin. In verses 7 through 11, Paul draws on this wilderness experience to show this, this, this unseparatable, I don't know if that's a word, but it is now, this, this, this relationship between sin and consequences. Look at verse 7. In verse 7, Paul says, because of their idolatry, it is written that they sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. What Paul is talking about here is the worship of the golden calf. Not long after the Israelites came out of Egyptian slavery, they went straight into pagan, idolatrous worship. And as a result, 3,000 of the Israelites were killed. So because of idolatry, it led to death. In verse 8, he says, neither let us commit fornication. Sexual immorality led to death. Verse 9, tempting Christ, questioning the goodness and questioning that God was really in control for the Israelites led to death. In verse 10, their murmuring and their grumbling and their complaining led to death. Adam and Eve sinned, and Adam and Eve broke perfect relationship and fellowship with God. Jonah sinned. And God cast them into the sea. David sinned and lost his first child with Bathsheba. Moses sinned and was barred from entering the promised land. Saul sinned and was rejected as the king of Israel. Lot's wife sinned and didn't listen to God's instruction. And as a result, was turned into a pillar of salt. So Paul says that all these things, as you look back at Scripture and you look at the example of those that have gone down that path of sin that leads to destruction, have happened as an example. Not examples to follow after, but rather an example for us to learn from. Since this history was written for our admonition. It was written for our warning. Listen, and the warning that this gives us is that God is not pleased with sin. But not only is God not pleased with sin, it warns us that God punishes sin. 
warns us that there are repercussions for our sin. And then in verse 12, Paul gives them one last warning. He then warns against spiritual pride. He says, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. You know, so often we look at the biblical narratives and we look at the history of the Israelites and we look at Jonah and we look at David and we say, how foolish. You know, God just delivered them. God's hand has been in their life, yet they continually turn against the Lord. And we say, I would never do that. And Paul is warning us here, don't believe yourself to be above temptation. He says, be careful to think that you are so holy and that you are so upright and that you're such in close relationship with God that you are out of Satan's reach. Because that's just when Satan will get you. Pride goes before destruction. 1 Peter 5.8 tells us to be sober, to be vigilant, to be aware, be alert, be on guard. Why? Because our adversary, our enemy, the devil, is walking around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Listen, be careful to have this spiritual pride, thinking that you are not able to be tempted, because that's just when you'll fall. We should avoid sin because of God's blessings and goodness, because of the Red Sea moments in life. Listen, if there's nothing in your life that you can look back on and say, you know, I don't have a Red Sea moment. Listen, if you have been saved by the blood of Christ, you have a Red Sea moment. If you can't look at your life and say, nothing good has happened to me, I can tell you that if you have been saved, more good has happened to you than you would ever deserve. We should avoid sin because it has grave consequences. Listen, learn from the examples of others. That's the beauty about the Bible. The Bible is full of sinful men and women who aren't perfect. And we can read their accounts and we can read their stories and we can learn from them how to not fall into the same trap that they have fallen into. Same thing with others in your life. Listen, get people around you that you can learn from, that can speak into your life and say, listen, I've been there, and I'm telling you that doesn't go to a place that you want to be. But then in verse 13, we should be comforted in knowing that we can avoid sin through the power of God. In verse 12, Paul warns the overconfident that thinks that they are above any temptation. But then in verse 13, he encourages the fearful. He encourages the person that looks at these stories and says, well, if the Israelites weren't able to overcome temptation, how am I ever going to be able to? The person that is fearful and that is overwhelmed by their sin and says, it just seems like there's no way for me to ever win. Look at verse 13 with me. In verse 13, Paul says, there is no temptation that has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above what you are able, but will with the temptation make a way to escape that ye may be able 
to bear it. So the first 12 verses, I believe, make it very clear that the temptation that Paul is speaking of is the temptation to sin. And what Paul is telling us is that if we want to overcome sin in our life, what we really have to do is defeat temptation. Let's understand that temptation in and of itself is not sinful. It's not sinful to be tempted. Jesus was tempted, yet without sin. But rather, temptation is that, that, that seed that then sprouts and then grows into sin in our life. Temptation is the enticement to sin. James chapter 1 gives us a, a great foundation for understanding temptation. In James chapter 1, James says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt himself anyone. So first we establish that temptation does not come from the Lord. So then he says, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So it is our inward, fleshly, carnal desires which draw us away from God and tempt us to then sin. Anybody that's been a Christian, anybody that's followed Christ for any period of time knows the reality and the truth that there is a constant war that is going on within you between the flesh and the spirit. The temptation to sin and the desire to be Christ-like. So in our flesh that was conceived in sin has in it a natural desire for things that are evil, for things that are contrary to God. So as we go through life, we are going to be constantly tempted by this sinful flesh, by this, this old man, the Bible calls it, that, that, that was in us before Christ. But Paul says, be comforted in knowing that there is no temptation in your life. There's no temptation that you are dealing with that is not common to man. In the original language, this literally means human. So what Paul is saying is there is no temptation that has overtaken you except such is human. So despite what we may conjure up in our minds and believe in, we may think our temptations are not unique to us. You know, others have battled with something similar. So I'm preaching to myself here. I know how it is when there seems to be a temptation that we just cannot seem to get away from. And it's as if Satan is targeting me and nobody else. You know, we, we tend to tell ourselves, well, nobody truly understands what I'm going through. Nobody truly knows just, just how strong this enticement is, just how strong this temptation is. And what Paul is telling us is don't become so discouraged, so, so overwhelmed with this temptation in your life that you allow it to then cause you to give up and give in because nobody understands. Paul says don't despair. 
He says there's others who have experienced the same temptations as you. But listen, not only have they experienced the same temptations as you, but there's others who have overcame that temptation, which then means that you have the power and the ability to overcome it as well. You know, another thing with temptation is, again, preaching to myself and my own experience. Sometimes as Christians, we allow even just temptation itself to beat us up so much. You know, we long to be Christ-like and we question, you know, God, why do I keep desiring the things which I shouldn't desire? Why does this thing that I, I really want nothing to do, but it continues to draw me in? Why is that happening? And we begin to beat ourselves up and we begin to question ourselves. But I just, I just want to encourage you this morning that if, that if that is you, if you've been in that state before, maybe you're in that state right now where you're questioning, you know, if, if I'm truly saved even, why am I struggling with this? Be encouraged to know that dead things don't struggle. Listen, the inner struggle that is going on in your heart, that inner struggle that is going on in your life where you know that you aren't supposed to be doing that, that is a sign of spiritual life. So in verse 13, first Paul reassures us that this struggle with sin is not unique to us. And then he continues with a far better source of comfort. And that truth is that God is faithful. Listen, just as God provided a way of escape for the enslaved children of Israel, God will always provide a path to freedom for his children. God is not a heavenly father that is far away. He's not a God that is uninterested in your affairs and uninterested in your life. He's not a God that just leaves you to fumble along in life by yourself, but rather he is a God that is present. He is a God that is right there in the midst of your battle with you. Listen, he's a God that loves you, and because he loves you, he doesn't want you to struggle. He doesn't want you to lose this fight with sin in your life. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, make you into the image of Christ completely. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But listen, he who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. And because God is faithful, Paul tells us that he will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can handle. God has limiting power. And when I say limiting power, I'm not saying that God is limited in his power. God is all-powerful, but rather God has the power to limit the circumstances and to limit the temptations and the, the evil desires that are within you. So while James establishes that God is not the author of sin, he does not authorize sin in our life, but there are times when God allows temptation. You know, the story of Job is the most clear presentation of this truth. God alone knows just how much you are able to bear. 
And the fact that God is the one that is in control, the fact that God is the one that is allowing this temptation to come through should give you great comfort in knowing that he will not give you more temptation than you are able to handle. Not only is our temptation human, not only is God faithful, not only does God have the power to limit our temptation, but he also has power to help us overcome that temptation. But with the temptation, he will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Paul says that while it seems as, as if sin has overtaken you, God has overtaken sin. There is no sin in your life. There is no temptation. There is no desire within you that you do not have power over. I think it's also worth noting as we look at this verse, we see that God's way of escape is not always the removal of, of temptation. Oh, how I wish it was. I, I wish that God really just take that temptation from me so that I don't even have to deal with it at all. But rather, God's way of escape is the ability to endure temptation. He says that you may be able to bear it, to face it, to stand with courage in the face of temptation, knowing that he that is in me is greater than he that is in the world. When it comes to our temptations, when it comes to these desires that entice us to move away from God, in most instances, the best course of action to escape such temptation is to flee. In most cases, that is the first thing that God gives us when it comes to these temptations, to run away just as Joseph ran from the seduction of Potiphar's wife, and as you continue reading through 1 Corinthians, you see that Paul tells the Corinthians to run from, from idolatry and from sexual immorality. Listen, if there is something in your life that you know there's a person, a place, or a thing, that you know if I hang out with that person, if I go to that place, if I put myself in this environment, that I'm going to be tempted to sin, remove yourself. Run from it. Don't, don't even set yourself up for failure. Don't put yourself in situations where you know there's potential to sin, where you know you don't need to be hanging out with those people, where you know you don't need to be in that place. God provides a way of escape through his word. Jesus was tempted by the devil himself. And Jesus resisted the devil's temptation with the truth of God's word. You know, you can pick up the spiritual discipline of counter-talking. Counter-talking is the idea that when I am tempted to lust, I go to Psalms 101, I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. When I'm tempted to covet and be greedy, I go to Psalms 10, for the wicked boast of his heart's desire, and the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. When I'm tempted to go out with friends or even stay home and indulge in some Coors Lights and some White Claws. Ephesians 5.18, do not be drunk with wine, 
which is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Listen, you know what sins you struggle with. You know what temptations that you have in your life that are the strongest and that are most likely to lure you away from the Lord. So memorize verses that directly counter the lie which Satan and your flesh is feeding to you. That way when Satan pops up this temptation in your head, you then shoot back at him with the word of God. God offers a way of escape through prayerful vigilance. Jesus told Peter, James, and John in Mark 14, watch and pray so that you don't fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Personal accountability. We saw last week the need for brothers and sisters in Christ who come along you and to help you and guide you on this path of Christ-likeness and living a holy, faithful Christian life. Listen, there's a multitude of different spiritual disciplines which we can develop by which God enables us to overcome and bear the temptation in our lives. Whenever you stare temptation in the face, just remember that you are not alone. Remember that the Lord is with you, that his spirit is working within you, that God will never leave you nor abandon you to your own resources but rather look to him, look to other believers for a way of escape which God has promised us. In Greek mythology, the sirens were half-woman, half-bird creatures which lured sailors to their destruction. The sirens serve as an image, a picture of what temptation is. The sirens were seductive. They sang a beautiful, enchanting song that was irresistible. And as these sailors would come, come sailing past them and they would sing that song out, they would be enticed and they would be lured to then steer their ships towards this song. And they would be lured to their death as they went towards the sirens. Their ships would crash into the rocks and sink. In Homer's classic epic, the epic, the Odyssey, Odysseus knows about the dangers of the sirens. And Odysseus, as he's getting ready to go past this dangerous pathway, comes up with a plan in order to endure the temptations with the sirens have. Odysseus tells his men to tie him to the mast. And don't, no matter what, no matter how much he pleads, no matter how much he begs them, do not untie him. And then to protect his men from hearing the sirens, he takes beeswax and he stuffs beeswax in their ears. So as Odysseus and his men come to the sirens, they are able to go through without hearing the, the luring temptation of their song. They're able to overcome this temptation. You know, this approach to temptation laid out in the Odyssey is similar to asking others to hold you accountable. It's similar to removing yourself and setting up strict and, and, and crazy standards that are going to keep you from falling into a trap that you know is there. Then 500 years later, in the Greek epic Argonautica, Jason and the Argonauts have to sail past the same sirens. And rather than taking Odysseus's 
path, they have another idea for how to overcome the lure of these sirens. On board their ship is a musician named Orpheus. Rather than stuffing their ears with wax and tying themselves to the mast, as they are sailing and they begin to hear the song of the sirens, they call upon Orpheus, and they have him play a louder and a sweeter, a more beautiful song in order to resist the temptation of the sirens. Listen, while it's wise to recognize your weakness and to set up safeguards to protect you, I can tell you that the best way to resist temptation is to listen to a sweeter song. Say, may our ears be so filled with the sweet melody of Christ that the seductive music of the sirens is completely overcome by it. That we'd be so filled with his knowledge of his character and his goodness and his love and his mercy that we would see him as far greater than any temptation that would lure us to destruction. That we'd be so consumed with a love and a passion for Christ that the music of the temptation of the sirens is not even noticed. The classic hymn states, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Listen, God's rescue plan from sin is Jesus Christ. Having, living, having lived on earth as a man, Jesus understands. Jesus can sympathize with our weaknesses. He can sympathize with our temptations. The writer of Hebrews says that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Listen, when temptation overwhelms you and it seems as if there's no way of escape, run to the cross. Run to Christ. Before Christ, sin was our master. But after Christ, we're no longer slaves to sin. We have a new master. Listen, the only power that sin has in our lives is the power and the authority that we give to it. Let this passage be first a warning about the consequences of sin, but even more so an encouragement and a comfort to us this morning. Listen, when temptations arise, and temptations will arise, don't give in. God has granted you power and authority to overcome. And when you fail, because you will fail and you will give in to temptation, don't be overwhelmed because God offers forgiveness. So we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us. Oftentimes, the Christian life is looked at as something that we can never win. When in reality, the Christian life is a battle that you can never lose. Listen, if you are in Christ, you are victorious. If you are in Christ, you are an overcomer. You have power and you have authority. 
If you're here this morning and you've never accepted Christ as Savior, any attempt to fight sin on your own will be futile. Any attempt to live a holy and a righteous life life will be of no point. Listen, you can live a righteous life here on earth. You can clean yourself up. But as you stand before God, none of it will matter. God doesn't accept us based on whether or not we've cleaned ourselves up and we've resisted sin, but rather God accepts us only on the finished work of Christ. Without Christ, your sin, no matter how big, no matter how small, disqualifies you. It removes you from perfect fellowship with God, and it condemns you to hell. But just as God gives a way of escape over the power of sin, Jesus Christ offers a way of escape from the penalty and the presence of sin. The penalty of sin is death, eternal death, separation from God forever. But the gift of God is eternal life to overcome that sin and be with the Father forever. Listen, be encouraged, church. God has overcome sin. And because of that, we can also, every head bow and eyes closed, the worship team come forward. If you are here this morning and you say, I want to overcome the penalty of sin in my life. I want to put my faith and trust in Christ, but I have never done that. If that's you here this morning, heads bowed and eyes closed, just slip your hand up. I don't want to embarrass you. I just want to be a help to you and show you how you can know for sure that heaven is your home. If that's you, just slip your hand up. All right, let us pray. Dear Lord, again, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to open your word. And Lord, I pray that we would be challenged, that we would be corrected, and that ultimately it would lead to us living Christ-like lives. Lord, we thank you for your mercy, for your forgiveness, for the power over sin in our lives. God, I pray that you would be with us the rest of this time together as we sing the last song to you in worship and bring us back here tonight. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, this time, this is now a time to respond to what God has worked in your heart. You can respond there at your seat, pray. You can come to the altar and pray if you'd like. You can come if you want to talk to somebody. We have people, if you're a woman, we have a woman. If you're a man, we have men that will be able to talk with you. Or if you'd rather, you can join us as we respond in worship, as we sing together, grace greater than our sin.